This morning, we want to talk about love. <laughs> it's the fruit of the Spirit. And it's the first of the fruit of the Spirit. But we're at the end of the fruit of the Spirit. And we're talking about love. Even though love is mentioned first, love truly is the attribute. It is the virtue. It is the characteristic. It is the force above all forces that hold the fruit of the Spirit together. And that's why we want to talk about love now. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit, we should know this by now, the fruit of the Spirit is, say it with me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against all such things, there is no law. The nine fruit here are nine separate fruit, but yet they're considered one fruit. We think of fruit like apples and oranges and cherries and peaches and so on. And they are a single fruit that grows from a limb of a tree. Whereas grapes grow from a vine and grapes grow in a cluster. Grapes grow together. It's interesting. I, I like grapes. In fact, in my house, I am the only one that can buy grapes. Yes. Because they have to be perfect. They have to be plump. They have to be crisp. They can't be soggy. And they can't be too small because they don't last long. And I, don't, I cannot stand a soggy, soft grape. It's got to be crisp. You've got to feel the snap. So, huh? Oh, both. It doesn't make... I, but I like the red. I like black, actually. Black is my favorite, but... I go for whatever is the freshest. I go for whatever is the best. And so grapes are something that you can describe them as individual. In other words, you give them the characteristic that they're round, they're, they're crisp, they're juicy, they're sweet. They can be purple or green in color or red. They're good. They're nutritious. Yet they're still unique and they're still common at the same time. They're similar to the one next to it, but yet they're very unique in its own um, characteristic. Likewise, the fruit of the Spirit is one fruit, but they have different characteristics. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. They're all... They're all powerful in their own right, but yet they they grow together. They complement each other. They um, depend on each other. They intertwine with each other. So as grapes grow in clusters, the fruit of the Spirit grows in a cluster in our life. Even though they're unique, even though they're their own separate power, their own separate um, attribute, they rub shoulders with each other. They share the same vine, if you will. They share the same um, nutrition. They share the, they, they share the same source of their of their food and their nutrients. They complement each other. They build on each other. So, why do we have fruit in the first place? We talked before about the. Two main purposes of fruit. Two main purposes. Early on, this is kind of a review of earlier messages. But fruit are to be eaten. Number one, they're to be eaten. And then number two, they're to reproduce in like kind. If I was a man on an island all by myself, then the fruit of the Spirit really wouldn't be too relevant to me because I'm all by myself. I'm a, I'm a lone ranger, if you will. I'm, 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 I'm on my own island. And therefore, it doesn't make any difference if I exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control, because I'm all by myself. It doesn't make any difference. But we don't live on an island, do we? We are a social people. We're a social grouping, and we group together. And so the fruit of the Spirit is important in that people need to see the fruit operating in my life. They need to see the fruit 
operating in your life so that we can nourish each other, so that you can feed into my life with your patience and your kindness and your goodness, and I can feed into your life with faithfulness, and we can feed each other off of each other's fruit. It's also meant to be reproduced in like kind. Peace makes peace. Love makes love. Gentleness makes gentleness. A kind word brings another kind word. We all know that if a person is in a tough situation, the best way to make it worse is to throw fire or fuel on the fire, right? I mean, respond with a negative word, respond with a critical word, and it only makes the conversation become more critical. But if you can diffuse it by giving a kind word, then kindness makes kindness. So it's, it's good, and we all know that. There's nothing here I'm not telling you that you don't already know. A good way to check our lives is to see if we're experiencing the love and the joy and the peace and the patience in our life. Because if we find ourselves becoming short with people, if we, kind, if, if we find ourselves be, being unkind or uncompassionate or um, we're maybe losing some of our faithfulness, it's a good way, it's a good opportunity to go back and check your spirit. Are you connected to the vine? Did your maybe cluster of grapes fall off? <laughs> maybe we need to re, re-graft ourselves back into the vine so that we understand. So not only is it, a, is it good for other people to evaluate us, but it's also good for ourselves to evaluate ourselves. Because am I still exhibiting, am I still experiencing, am I still living up to the fruit of the Spirit in my life. And if I'm not, it's a good indicator that maybe I need to go back. Maybe I need to go back on my knees for a few more, for a little bit more time and get my heart right back with the Lord again. And that's a good thing. That's what he's waiting for. The other thing about fruit is it's important that people see fruit in our lives before we try to witness to them. Before I go to someone and tell them how great Jesus is and how much I love Jesus, it's really nice if I'm exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. (laughs) It's really nice that they actually see it in me before I go to try to tell them that they should have it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Fruit of the Spirit needs to be seen in our lives so that it gives us uh, the opportunity to speak into somebody else's life. There needs to be a level of consistency in our life, not perfection. I I, I don't think people are expecting you to be perfect. I'm not. And I hope you're not expecting me to be perfect because I'm not. But I hope that we can expect in each other authenticity and humility and know that when I'm not operating in the fruit of the Spirit, that my first reaction is to go back to Jesus and say, I'm sorry. To go back and repent and say, you know, Father, I, I did it again. I, I blew it again, and I'm sorry. And when you do that, he's faithful because God is all of the fruit of the Spirit, and he's faithful to forgive and give you another chance. And so I think really that's what people want to see in our lives is that authenticity, that reality of who we are, not a fakeness, not a false humility, but truly that we, that we live our life gracious, humble, knowing that we can make mistakes, knowing that we can be forgiven, and then holding others to that same level of standard. And if we can do that, now we're beginning to operate in the fruit of the Spirit. That's supernatural. That is supernatural because you and I cannot do that on our own, in our own power, because we're not of that ability. Jesus was. Why was Jesus? Well, you could say because he was God. And I would say yes, but Jesus was also fully man. But what made Jesus unique was that the Holy Spirit was in the life of Jesus. When Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and the Holy Spirit came down as a dove and settled on 
the head of Jesus. And the Father in heaven said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. That was the moment that the Holy Spirit came into Jesus' life. And it baptized Jesus, if you will. And we have that same supernatural baptism. We talked about it a few weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday. We have that same supernatural baptism of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability supernaturally to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. So let's talk more specifically about love today. Love. Agape love. Now, there are other forms of love, and we've talked about this in the past. And I'm not going to go through the eros and all the other types of philia and all the other types of love. That was, that was later. But today I want to talk about agape. Agape love is defined this way. It is God's active love for his people. And within his people, which is a strong, compassionate, unchanging devotion to someone for their good, even if they don't reciprocate. I love the first couple words. God's active love. What is active love? What is active love? When I think of active love, I think of love that is ongoing. It, it wasn't just a one-time love. God so loved the world that he sent Jesus one time. Yes, he did that. But his active love says, I still love you. <laughs> I still love you enough that if you were the only person, I would send Jesus just for you. It's a love that says, I love you no matter what station in life you're in, no matter what condition of life you're in, no matter if you've sinned recently or not sinned recently, I still love you. God's love is so active in your life that it chases you down. It won't let you rest until he, until he has done everything he can to convince you to come back to him. Come back because all he's got is good things in store for you. Yes, you may have sinned and you may have fallen short like I have this week, but his love is so active in our life that he's not willing to let us go without a fight. He's fighting for you. Do you know that? The Holy Spirit is fighting for you. He wants you, wherever you're at, to come back into relationship with his Father. That's what active love is. God's love loved us when you and I were unlovable. Can you believe yourself was ever unlovable? Do you ever see yourself as unlovable? Yeah, I do. I don't, not you, I'm talking about me. <laughs> well, maybe you too, but me for sure. But I'm loving it, the fact that God's intention for me is always to call me back. His intention is always to give me a, a love that says, Mike, I just, want your, I just want relationship with you. I just want relationship with you. Can you imagine the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God when they walked in the garden together? You ever thought, you ever think about that? How peaceful it must have been. How joyful it must have been. How enlightening it must have been for God to come down and walk in the garden with Adam and Eve and to commune together and to talk together and to share stories together. That's the kind of love that God has for us today. That's what he wants from you and I, is that we would have that kind of relationship with him. True love from God is a love that promotes the welfare of others, at the same time bringing me and you into a closer relationship with the Father and also with each other. True love from God is a love that promotes the welfare. Listen to this. Promotes the welfare and the benefit of other people. If I truly love you, I am going to promote your welfare over my welfare. If I truly love you, I'm going to do things for you that are going to make you better. Because that's what God does for us. He loves us enough to make us better. He loves us enough that he wants us to be better than we were yesterday. He loves us enough 
that he wants us to make us better than we ever could be on our own because he wants to give us his Holy Spirit to help us do that. Paul talks about love in his love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is probably read at 95% of weddings because this is the love chapter. But when we read this, I want you to recognize how close the attributes of the love chapter are that we're going to read, how close they match up to the fruit of the Spirit. So open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And keep it open there because we'll stay there quite a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 4. It says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love Say it with me. Never fails. Love never fails. So when we read this, we can, we can go back and, and we can, when we say love is patient, well, there's patience in the fruit of the Spirit. Love is kind. There's kindness in the fruit of the Spirit. Love does not envy. Love is good. Fruit of the Spirit. It does not boast. In other words, there's gentleness in love. It is not proud. Love is self-controlled. It is not easily angered, nor, is it, or not, nor does it keep records of wrongs. Again, self-control. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. There's joy in love. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love is faithful to the end. So let's talk about some of these attributes in love. Love is patient. Let's talk about the patience of God's love. Patient love means it's never in a hurry to get something before it's time. Patience. Never in a hurry to get something before it's time. Boy, there's many applications of that in life. How impatient are we as people? How how often do we find ourselves cutting corners to get to the result that we want rather than being patient and getting to the best result. Man, I find that easily and most of the time, I mean, a great application of that is in premarital relationships. There's an application of that. Let's not get to the marriage bed until we're married. Let's not rush that point. Let's wait until it's ready. Wait until it's proper. Wait until it's time. Patient love means we don't jump to conclusions when someone may say something that hurts us, that we're not um, reading between the lines, that we're giving them the benefit of the doubt, that maybe they didn't mean what they said. I'm patient with them. I don't rush to conclusions about what I think they meant. Patient love's gives people many chances and many opportunities. We don't hold grudges. We don't harbor ill will against someone. Love is patient. Love is kind. It never acts rudely or rashly. Love is kind. It seeks to uh, reason or to justify one's accusers rather than being hard and maybe given a hasty judgment against somebody. Kindness reveals Christ-likeness in mankind so that we can be relevant to the world around us, that they can see the kindness of Christ in us that would give them a desire to know what I have. I'm different in the fact that I'm kind, and so they are, you're different because you're kind, and people say, what's different about you? Kindness is something that gives us a, an ability to break through a hardness in people's lives. You want to break through somebody that's hard, a hard person to deal with? 
be kind to them. Be kind to someone that maybe is not kind to you. Maybe he's got a reputation for being a hard person to get along with. The best way to get under his skin, the best way to break that barrier, break down that wall is to be kind to them and then see what happens. Love does not envy. Love does not seek something not given to them, but rather is generous in giving to others. This is a big one, I think, for Americans. We may not recognize what we have, that feeling sometimes that we have of envy, but I think we envy quite a bit. But love rejoices when it sees another person prospering. Love rejoices when they see another person getting ahead in life. Love rejoices when they see another person operating in their gifts rather than saying, oh, why can't I operate in my gifts? Why don't I have what they have? Why don't I have as much money as that they have? Why don't I have the same rights that they have? Envy is one of the things that will bring you, that will break a relationship quicker than anything because envy is pretty easy to spot in somebody else. It may not be so easy to spot in yourself, but it's pretty easy to spot in somebody else. And that will destroy trust and it will destroy relationships. Love does not envy, but it rejoices when other people get ahead in life. We're saying, that's awesome. Congratulations. You did it. You got the promotion. It's good. Love does not boast, and love is not proud. Love does not parade itself around under accomplishments that we might make because truly the accomplishments that I make, can I really take credit for them? I mean, I I think we, if we recognize that our source of who we really are isn't ourselves anyway, it's really God, do I even have the right to be boastful? Um, Proud, pride, is one of the biggest, one of the first sins that comes into your life. Pride is the sin that destroyed, broke the unity of heaven back so many thousands of years ago. We don't know exactly the time when Lucifer rose up in pride against God and said, I want to be like you, God. In fact, I'm going to be bigger than you. I'm going to be better than you. They're going to worship me, not worship you. And when pride rose up in Lucifer's life, we know what happened. God said, Lucifer, I love you, and you're beautiful. I made you probably the beautiful, most beautiful angel of all angels, but I'm still the one that made you. (laughs) I'm the creator. You're the creation. How do you have the right to talk to me as your creator and say you're going to be better than me? And that's not because God is proud. It just means that God knows who he is. And I think part of the problem is we forget who God is. We think that we can be like God. We think that we have the rights to do things over people, and that brings pride, and that brings a lot of problems, a lot of boasting, and a lot of, a lot of evil that comes out of a prideful heart. The natural man or the flesh man wants to promote themselves all the time, don't we? I mean, we are self-promoters because we say, if, well, if I don't toot my own horn, who's going to toot my horn? Well, I think a humble heart. I think it's always nicer when someone else will rise up and say, you know, that person over there, they're really a great person. It's really nice when somebody else will tell you how good you are and you don't have to tell them how good you are. (laughs) I think it means a little bit more when somebody else recognizes your goodness, don't you, than if you have to tell them how good you are. (laughs) I don't think it works the same. John 3.30, it says, for he must increase. Who is he? Christ must increase, and I must decrease. When I can get that into my life, that I, it's not about me. It's not about how good I am. It's not about how much money I have. It's not about all the good I've done. No, I must recognize that Jesus is the source of all things, and I just have to recognize how good he is, and how, and how blessed I am that he chooses to Bless me with some success. And that I just give him all the glory. And I give him all the credit. And I say, thank you, Jesus. 
Amen. Love does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. There's a lot here. There's a lot here to talk about. But love is courteous. Love is polite. Always seeking the good of others. And And anger is not easily provoked. When you really are in love with someone... I mean, really are in love with someone. They may push your buttons a little bit, but you probably really don't get angry with them. I think you might get a little annoyed. I think you may get a little impatient. But anger is a really deep emotion. When we understand truly what anger is, anger is, in, is not good in itself. Self-righteous anger is not good. Now, God gets angry. Because he's angry righteously. God gets angry at sin. And we can get angry at sin as well. You always notice that whenever Jesus got riled up, whenever Jesus got angry, what was he angry over? Was he angry because somebody insulted him personally? Was he angry because people rejected him no. When Jesus got angry, it was because they were defiling his father. When Jesus went in and um, overturned the tables, remember that? When he went in and, and took a whip and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the, and, and, and the uh, marketers in the temple, he said, this is not a, you've made this a, 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 den, of de- a, a den of thieves. My father's house is a house of prayer. And he got, he got angry because they defiled God the Father. So we can get angry about the right things, angry about sin in our lives. But it's not anger about somebody else. It's not angry because somebody accuses me. I have to be careful that I make sure that my anger is on the right things, that we're fighting the right enemy. The enemy is not each other. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood against the powers and principalities of the air. So we have to be careful. Now, the reality is, you're not going to live a life without someone probably offending you. You're not going to live a life above offense. The reality is, what do you do with offense? What do you do with it? Do you take the offense and do you become hard-hearted? Do you take the offense and become... uh, a, a, a grudge holding? Do you take the offense and say, I'm going to get back at you. We're going to get even on this. Are we going to fight fire with fire? You can't avoid being offended. But we can avoid making a list of our offenses. We don't have to remember them. We can forgive and forget. We can release. Remember, forgiveness doesn't say what that person did was right. It just says that they don't hold it over you any longer because you release them from whatever that offense was. And if we can't release the person, then that person takes ownership of you. Do you realize that? How strong grudges are, how strong staying offended is, because as long as you refuse to forgive and release that person, every time you think about that person, or every time you see that person on the street, what do you think about? The time that happened so many years ago that you got offended by them, and the reality is they probably forgot all about it. And they're living life great because they don't even remember even offending you, but you do. And so they have control over you again because you remember the offense. Whereas forgiveness says, I'm not going to keep that in my memory I'm going to release you of that and I'm going to forget. Now, that doesn't mean you don't learn from it. It doesn't mean that you don't create boundaries in your life. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that we release people from the justified or unjustified offenses that they've done in our lives. And with that, then, we don't dishonor them. We don't seek our own purposes over them. And we don't become easily angered. Peter rebuked Simon because Simon the sorcerer, here's an opportunity to talk about, I want to 
talk about how powerful bitterness is. How powerful and how long-lasting is bitterness. Because when bitterness comes into your life, what's happened is that the enemy has taken full control over you. When bitterness, when you become a bitter person, the enemy, listen, the enemy has control. Acts chapter 8, 21 through 23. This is a situation. This is back um, in the early church. Paul, I'm sorry, Peter and the other disciples were going around and they were, people were getting filled with the Holy Spirit. They were, the power of the Holy Spirit was alive and well. And it was very obvious, and it was a powerful manifestation of God. And they're ministering. Let's read this part. Acts chapter 8, verse 21. You have no part. He's, he's talking to Simon the sorcerer here, and I'll fill, this, I'll fill the blanks in a minute. He says, you have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of the wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Now what's happening is Simon the sorcerer is seeing Peter, and, and when they lay their hands on people, they're being baptized in the Holy Spirit, and Simon the sorcerer wants that power of baptism. So he says, I'll pay you for it. I'll pay you guys money if you show me. If you give me the ability to, to do this, I'll give you money. And this is where Peter's response was, no, because I see you're going to use it for the wrong reasons. I see that you are, you are full of bitterness and you are captive to sin. So when bitterness comes into your life, you don't own your life anymore. That's what this is saying. Bitterness and grudges are grievous to the Holy Spirit and there's no common area of agreement between the Holy Spirit and that person anymore because bitterness and anger and rage has filled them up and there's no room for the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, verse, starting at verse 30. It says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of of all bitterness, rage, and anger, and brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Here's the words. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ, God, forgave you. You know, um, let me just give you a little analogy here. I have a funnel. Okay, just a common old oil funnel, right? If I put it this way, upside down, here's, here's the whole point. I've used this, 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 this discussion with people that have been in marriage counseling situations or whatever. Make it, put this way for a minute, make a triangle. We'll do it like this, make a triangle, all right? And on this side is you, and on this side is the other person, and up at the top is God, Right? And so now, if, if, you're, if you're together, down here at this point in time, you're separated people. But if your eyes are both focused on Christ, and your direction is all towards God, okay? And as time goes up that triangle, what's your, what's your relationship going to do with your person that you're on the other side of that triangle with? It's going to get closer. The, close, the more time goes, the closer you're going to get. Now, that's between two people, but now there's multiple people. So now you take a funnel, okay? It's a cylinder with a common point at the top. It doesn't make any difference where you're at on this cylinder. I'm over here, you're over here, Joe's over here, Mary's over here, Pete's over here, whatever. You're all scattered on this thing. But if our eyes are all focused on Jesus, and as over time, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be getting closer together. That's called unity, we're going to get more unified in our approach to living because our eyes are focused on Christ no matter where we started on this funnel. No matter if we're here and here or here and here or here and here, when we keep going towards time, our time says we're going to get closer to each other, we're going to be more unified on Christ, and we're going to get closer together in, in, our, in our personal relationships. This is why being equally yoked is so important in your marriage, in your business, 
in your friendships, no matter where you're at, if you have close friends and you're not both focused on Christ, if one person is focused over here and you're focused over there, you're not going to get closer. You're going to get farther apart. And you wonder why marriages fall apart. You wonder why people have problems at work. You wonder why businesses don't work well together. Because our focus isn't on Christ. If, I'm, if somebody's focused over here and you're focused over there, time is only going to make you further apart. That's why we need to forgive each other. That's why we need to strive to be Christ-like together. Forgiveness is the remedy. Keeping our eyes focused on Jesus is the point. Amen. Let's continue on. Love does not delight in evil. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. What is evil? Think about all the evil things that are happening in our world today. Think about where this world is is going today. It's obvious to see that evil exists, doesn't it? Evil exists all around us. If love is present, then evil is not. If love is present, then evil is not because one doesn't do evil things to those they love. If you love your spouse, you're not going to do evil things to them. If you love your neighbor, you're not going to do evil things to them. Evil exists in the absence of love. When there's no love, evil triumphs. But love will overturn evil because if you love someone, you will not do evil to them. But what does it do? Love rejoices with the truth. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. So what is truth? What is truth? Is it my truth? Is it your truth? Is it relevant truth? Does truth matter on the, search, on the situation? Does truth matter on the circumstances? Does truth matter if it affects people in a bad way or a good way? See, I think the problem that we have is maybe we forget what truth is and maybe we don't remember what truth really is. Sometimes we view truth as a negative thing. Sometimes we think of truth as a way that God uses uh, a hammer <laughs> to hit me when I'm wrong, to hit me when I'm down. But that's not God's truth. That would be the way the enemy would look at truth. Truth is never negative. Can I tell you that much? God's truth is never, unequivocally, never negative. It might be hard, it may be difficult to hear because truth may reveal some things in my life. It may reveal some things in your life that maybe you don't want to think about, but it's not negative because the truth sets us free. You see, when a person can live in truth, a person lives with no regrets. When a person lives with truth and embraces truth, even if it's hard to hear, there's no regrets. Truth will prosper us and will make you more fulfilled in your life. Truth always brings honor to a life. Truth will result in great rewards eternally. Even though truth may be difficult, truth does not cause harm or distress. 
What causes the harm and the stress when you hear truth is your fight against it. Is your fight to say, no, I don't want to believe that, so I'm going to fight against that. It's not the truth that's hurting you. It's your reaction to the truth that's hurting you. It's me saying, no, I don't want to accept God's truth as being the truth. I want to make my own set of truths. I want to live my own way to life. I want my own joys. I want my own pleasures. Truth might cause us to think about some things in our life. It might cause us to have to change some things that we're currently doing. Truth will be hard, but it's never negative. I just want to pound that point to home. It's never negative. That's the way God looks at truth. That's God's truth. It's always positive. It's always for your good. It's never for your harm. No matter what our flesh man or the enemy wants you to feel about or or, or think about, it's never about that. Truth sets you free. And it it brings good things to your life. Truth sets us free from the lies that would keep us in bondage to the evil that untruth results in. The devil is really good at bringing partial truths into our lives, isn't he? He's really good at bringing just enough truth that we think we're on the right path, and he'll take us down that path of partial truth till we get to the point in time when we realize that it's not true And then what does the devil do? He brings even worse condemnation to you because he says, I told you, you can't live your life for God. You're a loser. You blew it again, didn't you? All the while, while he's telling you the partial truth, he's your best friend. He's giving you all kinds of excuses why you should continue to go down that path, but only when you find yourself down the path to the point that you've realized you're wrong, he doesn't say, oh, I'm really sorry about that, man. He says, I told you so. You're a loser. God doesn't love you. You're, no, you're unlovable. You're a jerk. I mean, he, he, he rapes you over the coals because at that point in time, he's got you where he wants you. That's the devil. That's your enemy. Know who he is, but know who God is. God says, no, Mike, I'll tell you the truth. It's going to be hard at the beginning, but if you listen to it, and if you follow it, you'll have great reward in the end, and I will bless you, and you'll have great rewards and no regrets. That's what I want. Truth requires discipline, and it requires us to be disciplined. Think of this, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. It says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And then it says, Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? This is interesting. He uses the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son because he says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his sons. He, in other words, he says the Lord gets the whipping stick from behind the barn and when, you, when you're wrong, he wants to get your attention. Sometimes he's got to spank you. Sometimes you've got to get spanked before, you got your, before he's got your attention. That's what discipline does. There's nothing wrong with a little... Discipline in your life sometimes by your father, earthly or heavenly, to get your attention back so you're ready to listen. Let me just say that the discipline is not in the spanking. The discipline is in the conversation once you've got your attention. Once your attention is focused, now you're ready to listen. Now is the discipline. The spanking part is just to get your attention God loves us enough to spank us. God loves us enough to whack you along the side of the head and say, are you ready to listen to me yet? Because I got something really important to say. And I love you so much, I want you to hear it. That's discipline. And I should thank the Lord for that because it's proving his love. Now, how do we prove our love back? How do we prove our love back? The only way that I can prove my love back to him is to listen to him, not rebel against him. I listen. I say, okay, you've got my attention now, Father. Now what do you want me to do? This is the hard part. This is the supernatural part because our flesh man doesn't want to listen. Our flesh man wants to make our own rules. 
Our flesh man wants to live the way we want to live. But when I can bring my heart into submission, that is the real act of the Holy Spirit that's saying, Jesus, I love you back. Because I'm submitting myself to you. I'm proving my love to you because I'm willing to listen to your commands. John chapter 14, 23 and 24, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me, what? Anyone who does not love me will not obey. You see the difference? You prove your love to God by saying, God, I obey. Now I love you. That's your proof. He loved you enough to discipline. Your love is enough to say, okay, I'm ready to listen. And I'm ready to apply now what your words are saying. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere what? So that you have sincere love for each other. Now love one another deeply from the heart. Obedience proves love. Obedience proves and shows love. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 and 6, through through 6. It says, we can be sure that we know him if, here's these words again, if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a liar and is not living in the truth. I'm just reading God's word. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Living like Jesus did requires the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to love. It's our way that we prove love to Jesus by joyfully obeying him. We can have all, we can have so much. We can have all the fruit of the Spirit. We can have all the the gift of the Spirit working us. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians, the same love chapter, this is how he starts it off. This is how the love chapter starts off, beginning at verse 1 of verse chapter 13. You probably are still there in your Bible, maybe. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Do you see how important love is? It's not just about what I do. It's about why I do it. What's my motivation of my heart? It's not just that I'm doing good things, but... Why am I doing good things? Am I doing it because it's about me? Am I doing it because I want to get people to think how good I am? Or am I doing it because it glorifies God? Paul finishes the love chapter by verse 13. He says, and now three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's God's perfect love. He loves us when we're unlovable. That's active love. That's the active love of agape love. When we love and don't expect anything back. Jackie and Tom, would you? We could go on and on describing love. We could go on and on with many more minutes, maybe hours, talking about the attributes of God's love. But I want to finish today emphasizing that love never fails. No matter what you're going through today, love never fails. All Jesus really wants to do is to love you. And all he's really wanting from you is, is for you to love him back. 
For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son to die on the cross for us. To die for us, to die in our place. He didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to judge. He came to die so that we could have eternal life. We have eternal life by accepting Jesus as our Savior. And then we make him our Lord through our act of obedience, proving our love to him through our obedient actions to him. That's what it's all about. That's why we can have joy in the day. That's why we don't have to worry about what this world is going through right now because we know that this is not our home. We're journeying through. This is not our final point. I kind of envy Janet, my mom, my dad. They're already there. Clarence and Ruth, my grandma and grandpa, they're already there. Uncle Bob and Aunt Florence, they're already there. I can't wait for the day. I'm going to live today. I'm going to enjoy the moment. I'm going to, I'm going to have joy in the moments the best I can. But, man, when I can have that assurance that Jesus is in my life and I know where my future holds, it doesn't make an difference what's going on in my life, rich or poor, healthy or unhealthy. <laughs> That's relationship. Let's pray. Father, I just come to you in Jesus' name. And Lord, I am so, so grateful that I have a relationship with you. There are many things that are vying for my time, vying for my attention. None of them holds a candle to relationship with you. So this morning, if you're here and you don't have that relationship and you want it. Or maybe you've had it sometime and maybe it's waned and maybe it's gotten cold and maybe you want it fresh. Today's the day of salvation. If you're watching at home, if this is if you're watching on Facebook, this is for you too. Just so you know, no matter where you're at, no matter what day of the week it is, if you're listening to this, you have an opportunity to accept Jesus as your Savior. All you have to do is receive him. All you have to do is say thank you. All you have to do is ask him to forgive you of your sins and for you to accept him as your, your Lord, as your Savior. Pray something like this. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me of all my sins. I ask you to cleanse me. I ask you to help me. I ask you to forgive me so that I can forgive others, that I can release others, that I can release the hurts that have happened in my life, that I can qualify to enjoy the inheritance of the saints that have gone before us. I thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. And I invite you into my life today, fresh and new, in Jesus' name. Amen.